it's incredibly quiet. And since it's electric, no emissions. I think a big change from a both to conservation side and a recreation side is noise. Think about going camping and being in a campsite and having somebody come through with a gas powered dirt bike or something like that. Pretty disruptive. And so there is, you know, just a lot less impact from noise, from output of emissions, and it still holds up to be able to get you where you need to go. And so I think that the combination of a lot of that really makes it a little bit of a Swiss army knife, but also maintaining its identity as an electric vehicle. Hello, and welcome back to the Outdoor Minimalist podcast. I'm your host, Meg Carney, and I'm an outdoor and environmental writer and author of the book, Outdoor Minimalist, Wasteless Hiking, Camping, and Backpacking. The Outdoor Minimalist podcast has the goal to give listeners actionable ways to waste less hiking, camping, backpacking, and more during every step of their process. Your impact outdoors starts long before you hit the trail and goes beyond leave no trace ethics. You'll learn how to identify sustainable outdoor brands, how to ask hard questions regarding sustainability, and begin to shift and evolve your mindset to integrate minimalism into all of your outdoor pursuits. In episode 119 of the Outdoor Minimals podcast, we enter the world of biking. Now, I'm an avid cyclist, but mostly with gravel bikes, so when I learned about electric adventure bikes, I may have raised my eyebrows just a little bit. And first of all, I just really didn't know what they were. Were they like e-bikes? Are they electric motorcycles? And surely, if they're an electric motorized vehicle, they weren't going to be good for the environments they're used in, right? Well, I was pleasantly surprised to learn that some electric adventure bikes are set out and designed as a mode of transportation that can bring you deeper into the backcountry while minimizing your impact. To learn more about these bikes and how they're taking the adventure vehicle world by storm, I had the pleasure of talking with Joey Plach, Director of Brand Marketing for Ubco Electric Adventure Vehicles. With more and more of the outdoor space becoming electrified, we look to dive into how UBCO is leading the charge in fostering equitable solutions for moving recreation and work forward sustainability. Starting with their roots in New Zealand agriculture, we speak with Joey on the evolution of UBCO's core product, the 2x2, an all-wheel drive, all-terrain electric adventure bike and its many applications. And right now, Outdoor Minimalist listeners can get $250 off a purchase of an UBCO 2x2 adventure bike with our unique link in the show notes. Click the link down below to save $250 on a 2x2 electric adventure bike. So thanks for joining me on the Outdoor Minimalist podcast today, Joey. I look forward to learning more about UBCO bikes and all of the innovations. But before we get to that, I want to know how you first became interested and involved in outdoor recreation and how it fits into your life now. Yeah, well, I'm born and raised Oregonian here in the Pacific Northwest. And part of that was spending a lot of time in the outdoors, whether that was camping or going skiing in the winter. It was just part of the culture and part of the lifestyle that I grew up in. And after doing a very short stint living in Los Angeles, made my way back to the Pacific Northwest. And over years of working in different industries that were in the outdoor industry or adjacent to it, I found UBCO and they finally made their way to the States. And it's really been an exciting foray into a deeper portion of this industry. Yeah. So is working with motorized bikes something that you've done for a long time? Or was it like your interest in the outdoor industry that drew you to UBCO? 
Yeah, I mean, I've been a longtime enthusiast of motorcycles and all things two-wheeled, just in the recreational sense. I've had cafe bikes, I've ran enduros and different things like that. And so I've really loved the exhilaration and exploration that it opens up and especially being able to get further into the outdoors. And that was a big component of me landing here at UBCO and, and working on what we're doing now. Awesome. And for the listeners, do you mind just explaining what UBCO bikes are, what they're used for, and then also what your role is with the company? Yeah, absolutely. So UBCO stands for Utility Bike Company. We're born out of New Zealand. We started as an agriculture product. Our founder wanted to make a electric bike so it could be quiet with something all-wheel drive. So it's a dual-wheel drive electric motorbike. And over time, more and more different use cases came into focus. We came into the United States. And uh, around two years ago, I was able to join the company and I'm our director of brand marketing. Okay. So I am not someone that is very experienced with motorized bikes, motorcycles, dirt bikes, any of that stuff. And so outside looking in, when I'm mm -hmm. looking at the bikes, what would kind of some of the differences be between the UBCO bikes and something like an e-bike or even a dirt bike? Yeah, I, I think we really split categories. And that's something that's unique to us as we are a product of our own design and nature. So one thing that differentiates us is we don't have pedals. So we're not a pedal assist e-bike, but we're also not a you know, full power off-road dirt bike either. We really find our space in between those two categories and really grounded in the approachable nature of exploration. And so our bikes have a lower center of gravity. It is a twist and go throttle with just a push button start. And so it's really made to be an inclusive product that you don't need to be somebody that knows how to shift gears in a motorcycle, knows how to ride moto deep in that category to be able to get on. And that's what really lends this bike to what it is. We, we actually modeled it after the old Trail 90 from Honda. And that was one of the best selling bikes of all time. It was built for a lot of projects, both on-road and off-road. And that's kind of the central ethos of our bikes is, you know, being able to do different work that's needed to be done, whether that's on the farm, ranch, conservation work, or just general exploration into the outdoors. We also comes with a lower center of gravity. It just feels safer. I think people being able to get on something technically electrically motorized for the first time and be able to touch their feet on the ground is a sense of comfort with it. And so, you know, we really are in this space between electric bikes and electric motorbikes that is what we call, you know, electric adventure bikes. And so that's kind of the category that we're carving out and educating people on how they can access. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I mean, you talked a little bit about the initial application being for agriculture. So I'm just kind of curious, mm -hmm. is that still the most common use or is it now used like for fun, for recreation or yeah, what are the general use cases, I guess? Right. Yeah. It's pretty broad, you know, to kind of go through the linear process of how people started adopting the bike. It was initially founded as a farm bike because it wasn't going to spook the animals. So you could get her across really rough terrain. You could be out working on it for a full day on a single charge. And then from there, we started getting interest from New Zealand Special Forces, where we were based out of because of its stealth nature and utility that it could carry equipment. Fast forward from there, we started fleet with Domino's Pizza in New Zealand. And so we have, you know, 
pizzas being delivered all over that country. And over time, and especially as we got into the U.S. market, it opened itself up to kind of the concept of everyday adventure. Being able to get on something that can take you from your office up to, you know, a trailhead 2,000 feet of elevation above you in a matter of 20 minutes was a huge, huge benefit to somebody that really wanted to go out and find adventure quickly in a different category. So in the States, I think, you know, we see a lot of people in the overlanding space adopting it. Folks that, you know, they live the RV life that don't want to relocate their entire RV to go run errands and pick up groceries because the bike itself can, you know, be outfitted with accessories and has 19 different racking points to carry equipment with you. You know, also ranchers find it really great, follow fence lines, do repairs, quickly get around the property without having to take a, you know, a gas powered vehicle around. There's a lot of issues with rollover and injuries on four by fours. And part of this, you know, kind of alleviates that well since it's lightweight. But yeah, we've seen a ton of applications and it's really cool to see. I mean, there's still plenty of people that use them to get around town as their daily commuter just because it's got great range. It's a comfortable ride and you can carry all your equipment. But it, it is really across, you know, ranching, hunting, daily commute, and just general exploration that we've seen a lot of here in the States and Canada as well. Oh, nice. Yeah. So do you see any use really with like forest service type or like trail maintenance as well? Yeah, that is definitely one of the founding use cases is being approached by trail alliances and conservation groups to be able to go out just because it's it's low impact on environment, right? It's emissions free and it's not a super high powered moto that's going to tear up the trails. And a lot of conservation groups we started working with found that, oh, we can strap on rakes, shovels, a lot of chainsaws to clear trails, all those different things we can to get a lot further out than we have been able to previously. And so we actually do work with Forest Service and some national park rangers in different areas, just starting to introduce the product as a resource and a solution for something that is emissions-free, that is nimble and can get the work done. And so that is definitely a big part of our focus from a perspective of it being a tool more than just the toy. It's nice that there are so many applications and you mentioned that it's lower impact. So I want to unpack that a little bit. And so is that because it wouldn't necessarily have as much power as something as like a UTV or ATV or a dirt bike or like also I'm curious about that because I've heard in a lot of areas like where I live in Washington people don't necessarily like having e-bikes out on the mountain bike trails because they'll tear up the trail more mm -hmm. so I'm just kind of curious what makes the UBCO bikes uh, I guess more wilderness friendly or lower impact yeah I mean Speaking to the power, there's still a significant amount of power that comes from these. Each of the hub motors has a thousand watts of output each. They can peak up to 1700 watts, which means there's a lot of torque for being able to climb and maneuver and get through trails up through tough terrain, but it's incredibly quiet. And since it's electric, no emissions. I think a big change from a both to conservation side and a recreation side is noise. Think about going camping and being in a campsite and having somebody come through with a gas powered dirt bike or something like that, pretty disruptive. And so there is, you know, just a lot less impact from noise, from output of emissions, and it still holds up to be able to get you where you need to go. And so I think that the combination of a lot of that really makes it a little bit of a Swiss army knife, but also 
maintaining its identity as an electric vehicle. And then what would you say about the, like the general wear on the trail for your bike? I mean, does it, is it comparable to an e-bike? Yeah, I would say it's very comparable to e-bike. I mean, given that it does have more power being distributed to both of the hub motors front and back, it will definitely propel you faster than an e-bike would from a pedal assist position. But we've never had complaints about this tearing up trails. We try to be really mindful of where we direct our customers so that they're not, you know, flying by people on single track that are pedaling on a mountain bike or something like that. And so there's, there's different spaces for them to operate within. But the reason that it has been adopted by conservation groups is that it's, you know, leaving no trace. And so if it did, couldn't pass that test of leaving no trace from the places it was used, it wouldn't be as widely accepted as it has been. And that's, that's conversations that we have with a lot of conservation groups that we've talked to in the States is even from pedal assist e-bikes, they have been weary to allow those groups to join their organization or allow those groups to really advocate for the the trail systems where we provide us a, a different solution where it's like this is actually a tool that you can go and take care of the trails as opposed to just opening the trails up to e-bikes for our exploration so i think that's kind of the difference there yeah that makes a lot of sense I want to talk about the batteries because <laughs> electronics have a pretty high impact and people that have been listening to the podcast for a long time will recognize the term planned obsolescence. So mm -hmm. um, just like planning for something electronic, something battery powered to expire. So then you have to, as a consumer, pay more to replace it. Right. And so I guess how would your bikes differ and not necessarily fall into those categories? Yeah. I think that when you think about the origination of how the battery was developed, we knew we needed to have something pretty substantial because since it is powering two hub motors that are stronger than most e-bikes, the fact that it goes 30 to 40 miles an hour, depending whether it's an on-road version or off-road version, and also power a full suspended vehicle, it's pretty significant. So it's a 3.1 kilowatt hour battery that's in this bike, and that has a 75 mile range on it. So substantial battery, it's very accessible to pull in and out, but the thing that makes it special is how it's designed and built. So many batteries within the space will actually stack banks of lithium ion cells and to make sure that they stay in place, oftentimes cover them with some kind of solvent or something like glue so they will stay put. The problem with that is once the battery loses its ability to charge, hold its charge, power whatever vehicle is going to, it turns into a very difficult process of breaking that down to create anything that is recyclable. So what we do is we actually build the batteries without all of that. We actually stack the cells and put them in place so that we can go down to a cell level to replace lithium ion cells on a singular level or a bank of cells and give it a much longer life. We've actually, since we've been working with fleet like Domino's and like conservation groups that are running them every day, we've found that 75 mile charge on the battery, you go through that completely dead to completely charged a thousand times over any period of time, you're only gonna lose about 10 to 20% of the battery's capacity. So it's meant to go for a very long time. And then we've always had second life in mind. So we can either repair the battery or since it's not all glued together and turns into a large piece of waste, we can break it down and recycle it 
you know, more responsibly. And I think that's a big part of our brand focus is mindfulness as opposed to just a race to the top of selling the most e-bikes or doing something. Everything that we've done with the two by two is really meant for having a long life and a very conscious impact on how the bike is used in its life and how the parts can be dismantled after it's served for life. Yeah, that's really cool how the battery is designed to be repairable or replaceable relatively easily. And that repairability, is that built into all of the aspects of your bike then? Like, could you repair it like you would a normal mountain bike or motorcycle or something like that? Yeah, absolutely. The The benefit of it being electric is there's fewer pieces than a standard combustion engine or anything like that to replace. Ultimately, it's a super high-end aluminum frame, which makes the bike lightweight in nature, but it's still substantial. The BMS and the controller are all very easily manageable to repair. And the bikes actually come with a field kit underneath the seat. So everything, every tool you'll need to repair the bike or change out the brakes, repair a flat or something like that, all fit in just a, a tiny field kit about you know, eight inches by four inches that sit under your seat. And so it really is meant to be super user-friendly, very straightforward. And there's not a whole lot of tools in there. There's a there's a small multi-tool and a, and a few little wrenches. And that's really all you need to make sure that it, it keeps going. And the nice thing is that all of these bikes are built with intelligent software that syncs to an app. So if you do have some kind of issue on the trail or well beyond service, you can actually check the app and get a code for what's happening with the bike. And oftentimes it's very easy to repair to reconnect a cable that's going to one of the hub motors or restart the bike to reset the software or whatever it might be. And so that ability to connect via Bluetooth outside of cell range makes it really helpful for it being in the back country, further out on trails or with folks that are, you know, off grid overlanding or whatever it might be. Yeah, I was wondering about that as you were speaking about like repairing the bike and stuff. I was like, well, what if you're like in the middle of the nowhere? Is it easy to repair? But that's a really, right. <laughs> that's an awesome feature and really good for accessibility. So if you're not necessarily mechanically inclined, you're still capable of doing it yourself or at least doing it well enough so you can get back to have someone else help you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We always say if, if you can turn a screwdriver, you should be able to repair anything on the bike. Perfect. Yeah. And is there one specific type of repair or like component that you have seen needing to be replaced most often? Is it the battery or other things kind of more likely to fail, I guess? It's really not the battery. The battery is really kind of the central part of the product and meant to last a very long time. What we've seen for the most part in general wear tear is like tires and brakes, which is pretty much true of anything that will just you know, go after time from stress of general use. But, you know, there is repairs that we need to do from time to time, but it's easy enough for folks that say there's something wrong with a hub motor, which doesn't happen that often. They can take off the wheel, send us the whole thing, and we can just replace it. So it's not necessarily a deep fix, but also we have over 150 retailers in North America that know how to work on the bikes. And so there's a lot of resources nearby. So Oftentimes, you know, you can you can get direction like, oh, this you just do X, Y, and Z. And I find myself guilty of this. And it's like, I'd much rather somebody that knows what they're doing 
take care of it, right? Even if it's a small fix. And so we do have those resources between internal customer service that can talk you through anything to taking it to one of our retailers or one of our dealers that can just really help get it back in perfect working order. But they're they're really meant to run and be self-sufficient as long as you are not, you know, as long as you charge it and you, you store it right. I mean, it, it will pretty much weather any storm. This podcast is sponsored by Diorite Gear. Diorite Gear sells sustainable trekking poles handmade in their Portland, Oregon workshop. By taking ownership of their production, Diorite Gear is able to minimize their trace in manufacturing and in the environment, while their poles' recyclable and easily repairable components allow you to do the same. As someone that hikes daily and often in the Cascade Mountains or its foothills, trekking poles have become a staple in my gear lineup. The Diorite poles not only have comfortable cork handles, but I also love the adjustability, durability, and overall performance no matter the time of year I happen to be hiking. Use the code MINIMALIST for 15% off your first order. Hey Outdoor Minimalists! We explore a lot of topics ranging from the sustainability of wool or even the amount of stress that can be lifted by integrating minimalism into more aspects of our lives. But there's one topic request that has surpassed them all, and that is PFAS or PFCs. You may be familiar with this term if you tuned into episode 111 of the Outdoor Minimalist podcast, where we heard from Donna Bruns and Martine Axelhead from Fjall Robin. PFAS or, or PFCs, they're in essence a what we call a forever chemical, and they make quite a few things easier. When it rains, it makes uh, the rain kind of bubble up and sip off your garments, and so it keeps you dry, feeling dry. It is used to make something more durable. It is used to uh, make something uh, smoother and go faster, even in production. So it's, it's used on a lot of things for durable and, and water repellents, but not limited to water repellents, but it's also dirt repellents. And these chemicals are input in so many different areas, not just in apparel or in production, but it is everywhere. And the more we understand, the more we understand that it's in so many places. And I think that's the biggest challenge that we all face. But that was only one hour long episode and that was only one company. And it still left me wondering, how is the outdoor industry as a whole tackling this problem? That's why our team set out to develop a new 10-part series titled Forever Chemicals. We set out to answer that question and many, many more. To do this, I sat down with countless experts from brands like Fjall Robin and Outdoor Research, along with scientists, lawyers, and lawmakers that all have a stake in how PFAS is used and how it's now being eliminated. Over the course of 10 episodes, we investigate the origins, rise, and now phase out of the forever chemicals called PFAS, previously known as PFCs. With more companies beginning to understand the dangers of these commonly used chemicals, they're being phased out to keep up with new laws and to ensure company ethos align with their production. However, many of us as consumers may not know what they are or why we should even care about them. That's where we come in. We're here to be a direct line to all the people in and outside of the outdoor industry and to help everyone understand what PFAS are and why we should stop using them. So if you're wondering how we can make a difference in the fight against PFAS pollution and how we can keep the health of our planet and our communities on the forefront of product producers' minds, tune in to Forever Chemicals, coming March 2024. This production chooses to be an independent podcast to ensure that our message is unbiased and that we only present facts. 
While we are open to sponsorships when available, it's important that our values align and there are no expectations to conceal any information about their practices or to ask us to be less transparent. That's why we're asking you, our listeners, to consider donating to our GoFundMe to help fund this podcast series. Your donations will go towards general production efforts, time spent on interviews and research, audio editing and engineering, marketing campaigns, and public relations. As the host and creator of this show and Blackfooted Ferret Productions, it is my goal and mission to provide free and accessible information for all. If you're interested in donating, follow the link in the show notes. And thank you all for making this show a possibility. Are there like certain types of terrain or like weather conditions that the bikes fare best in? Because I mean, we're recording this in winter. And so I'm kind of thinking mm-hmm. of that. Like, is it, are you capable of using it year round? Is the battery impacted by changing temperatures? Because I know like batteries often deplete faster in cold weather. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there is basically stores recommendations for the wintertime that if you are going to leave your bike sitting outside for a long period of time, I'm going to leave my bike outside in a carport and it's going to be snowing for the next month. We'd recommend you pull the battery and bring it inside, but it's as easy as lifting the seat up and the whole battery slides out. It literally takes five seconds to remove that and you can charge it inside or in the bike. But ultimately we have quite a few folks that are on our ambassador team or our customers that send us photos and videos of them taking it up to go skiing. We've actually even like 3D printed some ski racks to go on the bike where they can actually take their their stuff up and do recreation for the day, leave it, ride it down without any worry. And part of the benefit of, of how the bikes are set up is there's brake regeneration. And so the brake regeneration, especially if you're doing a lot of like going up to the mountain and coming back down or whatever it might be, that brake regeneration really helps maintain the battery range. But ultimately, it's very much all season. There's just certain care we try to let people know about. And usually that's letting the bike sit for long periods of time, especially at a low charge. So freezing temperatures, we usually just say, bring it in somewhere. It's easy enough to do. And if you're not freezing, the battery won't be either. Yeah, that's really interesting. I didn't think about using it like to go skiing, but I understand the draw of the application. I just feel like it'd be really cold. <laughs> yes, I uh, a little bit too a little bit too cold for me to brave. But there's there's plenty of folks out there that just love love the ability to get out and go. So. Yeah, absolutely. And I I really love the like the way you've explained the bike design and the fact that it's so intentionally designed. And so I think whether or not people are using the Ubco bikes, what would you recommend to people using any type of adventure bike out on the trail in the backcountry to be more responsible and to take mm-hmm. better accountability for their impact? Yeah, I think that ultimately it's just it's just all in the approach. You know, I think that that goes for a lot of different subject matter, but especially this is if you're going to be going out on a pedal assist e-bike or something motorized or an adventure bike like we make is just utilizing a lot of the resources that are out there with different trail mapping systems like OnX or all trails, because they will have really good categories to help kind of separate what are forest trails and other trails that you can ride on that will not be single track where you're going to be, you know, coming up fast nose to nose on somebody on a mountain bike. And I think that just planning your route, sticking to areas where you'd be mindful of everybody else out there is important. And that's something we try to preach is just 
the more you're educated on where you're going and how you plan to get there, the better experience you'll have anyway. And so I think that's what we usually tell folks. We always try to have resources in any areas we operate, specifically here in the Northwest, you know, when we're sending people out on demo rides or we're working with a tourism operator, they'll design a route that is really built for the product itself. So I would just say, check out the resources, find an area that you know that no one's going to give you that side eye for being on the very wrong trail to get to where you want to get. Because usually there is all different kinds of trails to get to those beautiful viewpoints and scenic areas. All great recommendations. And I'll share some resources in the show notes as well if people want to check that out. And is there anything specific that you feel like I missed or you wanted to share about the company or the bikes in general? We could talk a little bit about just, you know, we've done different editions for different use cases. Oh, yeah. So beginning of this year, we broke from the very two first models that we had. We started out with the work bike, which is this bike that I'm sitting on here. It's just kind of a stripped down model. You still have dual power to both wheels. You still have all-wheel drive. You still have a great range on it. You still have all the utility, but it's got a 2700 lumen headlamp and then after time, we wanted to make it on-road capable. And that's something that really makes our bikes special too, is we actually have bikes that are road registrable. And that gives a lot of difference in the market because there's a lot of other products out there that are either electric motor bikes, electric dirt bikes, that are not street legal. Most are not. And so that makes it capable. And with that, those have turn signals. And so those are our two models. One was the work built for the backcountry farming, ranching, hunting, and then one built for commuting around. And so beginning of last year, we actually launched a special edition bike. We worked with Peak Design on some really great gear mounts to be able to hold your phone, to navigate around town, some different custom colorways uh, of, of this uh, really beautiful mossy green and some accessories that came with it just to be able to easily put everything you carry on a day-to-day process on the bike. Just helping people kind of understand the value proposition of how you use the bike. And then just this fall, we released in partnership with Shane Dorian, who's a famous big wave surfer in Hawaii, but is also a really ethical and mindful sportsman. And so we, we launched a hunt edition with him. The general focus of the bike and the core competencies is that it's incredibly quiet. It can carry a lot of gear. It has a long range. And so really makes it perfect for that space to be able to get through the backcountry, to be able to carry more gear, to get out to a blind or whatever it is. And so we're really excited to, we partnered with a handful of folks there, Bare Bones Living, Onyx, Giant Loops for a strapping system, as well as Peak Design again. And it really was set up to have everything you need to get all the way out into the backcountry and back again with everything. And it just has been a testament to so hear our customers talk about like is a game changer because I spent so much time hiking out or packing a deer out or whatever it might be. And so 80% of hunting is conservation. And so that is kind of our angle into that too, is every time folks are paying for a tag, so much of all that money is going into the conservation work on the back end. So with those models coming out, we're, we're also focused on what's the conservation angle of the recreational activity. And so we've continued to do different editions, and those are the two we've done this year, and hopefully more to come. Yeah, the hunting application makes a lot of sense, especially with lack of noise pollution, I guess, or like the lower amount of noise pollution and the mm-hmm. the range and storage capabilities. Yeah, it would make certain things a lot easier. Yeah, Absolutely. 
Yeah. How can listeners learn more about Ubco electric adventure bikes and check out all of your recent models and stay up to date with any new options available? Yeah, I think the best bet is to check out our website, ubco.com, ubco.com. All of our current models are on the website, but we also really try to curate a lot of content and tell a lot of stories, whether it's working with different conservation groups. We work with a, a lot of different ambassadors from photographers for National Geographic to folks like Chris Ricard and some other folks that are great partners in helping us really showcase all the different use cases. And so if you're interested, go check out our blog, go check out our products. You can be able to find a dealer near you on the website and go take a free demo ride and also follow along on Instagram and across social media at Upco Bikes. Amazing. And I'll be sure to share the links to all that in the show notes so you can find it really easily. But with that, thank you so much, Joey, for sharing all of the amazing innovations that Ubco has to offer us. Oh, thank you. Thanks for listening. And if you like what you hear, let me know. Leave a review and be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can find us on Instagram at outdoor.minimalist.book on YouTube, or subscribe to our weekly newsletter at theoutdoorminimalist.com. For even more updates, other educational resources, and to help build an outdoor community with the shared goal to create a better outdoor space as we recreate.